0: Convenient means for most people who are also working or taking care of children or taking care of elders, not having to arrange for those things to be managed in their absence while they go after some doctor visit that could have been done with a telehealth modality with just a few minutes out of both the doctor's day and the patient's day.
1: We're bringing you another episode in our special Community Broadband Bits podcast series, Why NC Broadband Matters. I'm Jess Delfiaco with the Institute for Local Self-Reliance in Minneapolis, Minnesota. NC Broadband Matters is a North Carolina nonprofit. Their mission is to attract, support, and champion the universal availability of affordable, reliable, high-capacity Internet access necessary for thriving local communities, including local businesses and a local workforce so each can compete in the global economy. The group has created the North Carolina chapter of CLIC, the Coalition for Local Internet Choice. The Institute is working with NC Broadband Matters to produce this series focusing on issues affecting people in North Carolina that also impact folks in other regions. Today we're joined by Dave Kirby, president of the North Carolina Telehealth Network Association. In this episode, Christopher and Dave talk about the role of broadband and telehealth in 2020. They discuss the differences between rural and urban health care and how telehealth in rural areas could reduce costs. Dave also points out all of the issues that health technicians can face without broadband access and why telehealth has become even more important during the COVID-19 pandemic. Now here's Christopher talking with Dave Kirby of the North Carolina Telehealth Network Association.
2: Welcome to another episode of the Community Broadband Bits podcast, a special edition on North Carolina as part of our long-running series that started from about 100 years ago before this pandemic began. (laughs) Well, we are going to be addressing it today, talking about telehealth, but this is a part of a series sponsored by NC Hearts Gigabit, uh, NC Broadband Matters, organizations that care a lot about broadband in North Carolina. So let me introduce you to my guest. Dave Kirby is the president, of the North Carolina Telehealth Network Association, and he's actually its founder from back in 2006. When that's not keeping him too busy, he provides consulting and information security and privacy for emerging t- information technology type stuff. Welcome to the show.
0: Thank you. Good to be here, Chris.
2: I really appreciate you taking uh, some time to come in, um, to come in, (laughs) I guess we're all staying in right now, but to do this interview, tell us a little bit about what the North Carolina Telehealth Network Association does, please.
0: It's an association of whose members are subscribers to the North Carolina Telehealth Network, and its mission is to advocate for and support broadband services for public and nonprofit healthcare providers here in North Carolina.
2: Wonderful. So we've decided to switch to a different microphone uh, over the phone line rather than doing the interview because I was afraid of the, the quality. So I don't want to work my producers too hard. All right. Um, I guess one of the things that I wanted to ask you about is what does broadband have to do with healthcare now in the year 2020?
0: Well, you can pick up almost anywhere with this, but I would pick up maybe 15 years or so ago. The public policy around healthcare gravitated towards the idea that the use of information systems in healthcare needed to be broader and deeper in order to improve the efficiency, effectiveness, and all around quality of healthcare and a number of programs and pushes later, what we have is most healthcare providers in the country have adopted information services mostly that are remotely served. So these are like electronic health record systems, uh, is a big piece of this, connections to places like imaging centers and uh, other diagnostics, labs, that sort of thing. And so if you just turn on today and look at it, what you'll find is that most healthcare providers are very dependent minute to minute on the availability and quality of their broadband connection nowadays. The result is uh, much higher interest, much higher profusion of high quality and highly reliable broadband connections uh, throughout the healthcare system.
2: I think it may be worth taking a step back to describe what the healthcare system is, in part because so many of us, I think, try to spend as much time as we can not dealing with the healthcare system. But, but when you say the healthcare system, I mean, oh, is this is this a few big hospitals, or how far down does it get?
0: No, it's uh, in North Carolina. We we clock it at a, something in the neighborhood of a couple of thousand sites. Those being hospitals, uh, clinics, things called federally qualified health centers, which serve mostly the uh, low-income people, free clinic, behavioral health sites in the state, the kind of outlying clinics that you see around the typical hospital. All of our big hospital systems here in the state is maybe the public things of them are not just hospitals. They're hospitals plus a large number of clinics for every one of them. So, oh, I can pick a number. UNC Health System seems to have something like 250-odd sites at which care are provided throughout the region. I believe Novant is another good example. They have something like 400, 500 sites here in North Carolina. And so virtually anywhere today that you meet somebody who's providing you a medical service, that's part of the health system.
2: And and that location is going to need broadband just as part of how they do business on a regular day. They're going to need a high-quality internet connection that uh, is not going to break the bank and is going to um, make sure they have the reliability they need because I'm assuming if they're down for 15 minutes, it could be really a problem.
0: It's a problem being down for 15 minutes. Although many, if the outage is caused by, say, a typical one is a fiber cut, where somebody has unfortunately cut a piece of fiber somewhere and taken down a whole bunch of people. Usually, it it usually takes on the order of hours to repair those things in maybe a day or more depending on weather conditions. And most healthcare providers are now in a situation where what happens immediately when the network connection goes down is that they no longer have access to patient records. They no longer have access to functions that allow them to even make appointments and carry out ordinary clinical activities in the course of seeing a patient. They can't record information that will be relevant either for getting paid or for subsequent clinical care. So, those are all really important uh, consequences for the typical site today. Now, of course, it's true also that the people who are doing what I think the public imagination sees as telehealth services, most people iconically think of talking to a clinician over a video link, and, and surely that's a, a major form of this kind of activity. But uh, those things also require connections, and when they're down, are not working adequately, then the experience that both the clinicians need and that the patient's value uh, is interrupted, and it's, it, you can imagine what a disturbance it is. So it's, it's at least as important as power and water and any other utility in the typical healthcare site today.
2: I like the way you, you, you phrase that in terms of the the popular imagination. And, and, and just briefly, I, I mean, I think we do want to spend most of our time talking about that, um, the part of imagining using the, the video system um, to do it either from your home or from a local location with some distant specialist. But is that, I mean, just from a perspective of telehealth writ large, is that the most important thing that we're working on right now? Or are there other aspects of telehealth that often get ignored but are crucial to understand for improving healthcare? Mm-hmm.
0: Well, I think that an, uh, aside from the direct video call kind of centric care model that, uh, that we just talked about, the second sort of large category of applications are Probably generally better described as connected care. They look like places where patients usually have devices that they keep with them uh, at home or as they move around and devices might be say uh, uh, an internet connected watch or a an internet an internet connected monitoring system at home that monitors things like glucose level or weight for. People with COPD and communicates that information back to a healthcare provider uh, sometimes automatically and sometimes at the patient's direct request in each case. And that becomes part of the care process. It either it may become a notification to the care provider that something needs to be done, that the patient needs to be engaged, or it may just be the accumulation of information like uh, long-term glucose glucose readings from a diabetic to help determine what to do to help them, whether their A1C is working well or whether the glucose levels are working well on a more acute basis. So there's all this communications of stuff that's going on with us in our daily lives, and uh, that kind of field is getting to be called connected care.
2: One of the things that rural America is dealing with all over the nation is, is rural hospital closures. And that seems like it's really hit North Carolina hard, particularly over the last uh, 15 years when you've been working on, um, on these issues. And I'm curious if you can give us a sense of what, what care is like in rural areas of North Carolina um, without the telehealth. And then we can go into how that is hopefully changing both now and in coming years.
0: Uh, well, I, I think the historical problem uh, in the rural areas that telehealth applications have been focused on is extending viable access to care to the rural population, especially in places where that viable access is just totally missing. Or, And by viable access, I mean Let's suppose you have to see a psychologist and you live in a rural area and you've, you've decided to enter into a therapeutic kind of relationship with them where you go once a week. Well, if you're in a rural area and the psychologist is 50, 100 miles away, which would be pretty difficult, it's just not practical for you to do that uh, un- unless it's just hypercritical for you to see this person and you're willing to somehow manage a 50, 100-mile trip times two. Once a week, in order to do this, well, that cuts off a lot of people from practical access to a service like that. And so, uh, at least for the last decade or so, uh, the telehealth applications have been emerging, have been ones in the, for address to rural populations, have been to cut the travel problem. Uh, Of course, the travel problem exists in the other direction, too. You uh, have limited opportunities to bring the psychologist to the patient's community once a week, for example. Same thing with medical providers. It's not great use of uh, an expensive resource like a doctor, for example, to have them uh, have to show up and spend a lot of their lives traveling around the state in order to get to a number of very thinly populated pockets of, of people. That's a real hard problem to solve in terms of making good sense out of spending healthcare time and even attracting people to do it. But the remote doctor, the remote nurse, the remote the therapist and psychiatrist, those things are things that you can practically do with a lot of care scenarios. Of Of course, eventually, you're going to hit a bump where a patient has to really see a doctor. But what's happening here is is telehealth is reducing those occasions and making access to medical services a lot broader and better and easier and more viable for people in rural populations.
2: Do we have any sense of the, the difference, whether it's in uh, dollars or, or some other measurement of how – people living in rural areas are are missing out or having worse outcomes uh, because they don't have the same access that people do in more urban areas?
0: Well, you can certainly find any number of projects over the last decade or so who've been put up as pilot projects that were meant to evaluate this. And those pilot projects, of course, have produced the first round of data that helps us see what the difference is between a population with and without telehealth-based activities with it and access to medical services through telehealth uh, modalities. Uh, I don't think I've seen one rolled up into like one big package because it's usually studied one issue at a time. So here's, here's therapy for depression over here, and here's program to support uh, diabetics in the rural community that's telehealth based and here's another one that's about managing strokes in rural locations and uh, so it's a little hard to that at least I don't have access to a kind of an overarching thing but you can tell by the number of projects and at least my sense of how broadly it is that uh, the payers who especially Medicare, Medicaid and private payers Uh, have agreed that this is an effective modality for addressing these populations is the rate at which payers uh, and the ways in which payers over the last years have loosened their willingness to reimburse for the so-called professional services, so the actual doctor's time taken in a telehealth application, and also to somewhat to reimburse uh, providers who use telehealth modalities and have costs associated with that, so the The business of using telehealth uh is getting paid for more and more, and I'd say overall that only happened after there were a lot of demonstrations about how effective this was in uh in improving the health outcomes for people in the areas that that the telehealth application addressed usually rural areas i mean that's the biggest focus for these things.
2: It seems like in your answer there is a uh, an unmet need in in rural areas that there's a differential for people who are in rural areas um, with the care that they can get, and that you know these the entities that are um, in charge of. Of figuring out how to cost effectively deliver care to them have determined that telehealth uh, is effective. I'm, I'm assuming they're using a pretty high bar to uh, make that that um, decision. But then the the third thing is is um, are we seeing that then limited or even you know in some way rationed by the availability of of high quality internet access in different areas? Then,
0: well, that aspect of the problem has been what I spent a lot of my time on in the last 15 years. And the, the answer is yes. There's quite a distinction between the availability and the cost of broadband in rural areas as opposed to uh, urban areas in this state. And this is repeated everywhere in the country. I'd say most of the difference is a consequence of the cost of providing wired or fibered services in thinly populated areas versus heavily populated areas. You take a a city where you put in the money to bring a fiber by a building that houses, uh, that's an apartment building that has 100 people in it, and that costs X. Get that fiber from there back to a point of presence somewhere on the vendor's network. That same amount of distance in a rural area that's only one one one-hundredth of the population density would mean that somehow that same cost has to be borne by a single connection. Now, that's an extreme to point out the effect here, but you'll, you'll find along the way that for wired connections, especially in fiber connections, uh, this is a really important feature of the cost structure is what it costs to bring a, bring a cable into your facility or your home, wherever that is. Wireless has made this a little bit easier for some modalities because of its ability to to uh, spread signals without having to take a wire literally down to the last inch in order to to reach a person. And the good thing about that is you uh, have been able to reach some more people in a way that's cost effective, but that's still limited in some places where you can't get either enough bandwidth on the wireless side of that connection or you can't even bring it out to some parties. I'm, I guess we've all had experiences traveling around where there was just a dead zone. There was just no signal from any vendor you could find providing wireless services. And that's much more common in rural areas than it is anywhere in an urban space. And again, it tends to be part of the math of this tends to be part of the having to justify putting up The cost of running, say, a cell phone tower, and by the way, every cell phone tower has to have a way to move its data uh, that's passing through it back up into the network, and that's usually a fiber connection of its own, although it's a single fiber connection that carries service for a very high number of people compared to, say, a suburban situation where fiber is uh, strung between houses. Uh, So although the wireless doesn't help a good bit, it's still not gone as far in terms of cost and benefit as would be helpful for us to reach uh, virtually everybody in the state. And this is a general countrywide problem.
2: I feel like one of the the challenges has to do with the the business models that have been used thus far, in that both public and private business models have tried to Um, generally pay for themselves with uh, the direct revenues. But I think a conversation like this, we can really try to talk about some of the value we were talking about a few minutes ago that currently is out there. Because, uh, you know, a person in uh, the western part of the state who can't get to a doctor regularly, who may not be able to get even to a clinic regularly to get checked up for a a chronic disease, not only are they experiencing pain, but there's also societal costs for many people who may be on um, public Publicly supported uh, health insurance, and so you know, if we can have high quality connectivity to that person, we may start saving money elsewhere, and and that's one of the reasons many of us justify then spending public dollars in, in a variety of models to make sure everyone's connected.
0: I agree that the um, part of the justification in specific cases, and going back to those all those pilot studies I talked about a few minutes ago uh they're often framed in terms of savings in terms of dollars in the healthcare system. They're rarely framed in dollars associated with social costs elsewhere, like people who aren't healthy enough to work, not being able to participate in the work world, or people who are not healthy enough to take care of their families, not being able to carry out the role of uh helping to raise children. Those sorts of things are rarely included uh, as part of the cost. But I I feel, and I I think most people intuitively feel, that that that's a serious cost in the broad sense of the term. The most important long-serving and I think the largest dollar-wise program have been the programs carried out by the Federal Communications Commission to essentially subsidize Everything from telephones to nowadays broadband for the public uh, and for healthcare providers and other social good groups like schools. Those have been going on for a long time, back since the 1934 Telecommunications Act. I believe so. Yeah. You know, the original thesis, as I understand it, behind the 34 Act was, well, America ought to be connected because without it, then America isn't a country, it's two. You know, it's the those who are connected and those who aren't. And, you know, if it hadn't been for that, then connecting rural phones initially would not have been affordable by much of anybody because who could pay the, 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 co- the actual underlying cost for a thinly distributed population? Across the amount of uh, dollars it would have cost to put wires and enough equipment at the right intervals. And that's continued to this day. Uh, there is some limited amount of interest so far, but growing in the area of substance broadband for the public, especially for health purposes. Some of the latest stuff announced just yesterday by the FCC in their Connected Care Program and the even more emergent uh, COVID-19 telehealth program, those are about extending dollars, subsidizing costs for methodologies that are meant to uh, actually go out into uh, public homes and even be mobile with people as they get through their work days and shopping and anything else that they do in their normal lives. So there's, I'd say there's limited but growing interest in doing things that reach the public, but there's very well-established interest in the SEC's part in carrying out the core of its congressionally mandated uh, requirements under the Telecom Act of 96 to reach out into the healthcare community and connect public and nonprofit healthcare providers
2: well in the the current situation with the pandemic uh, we're recording this on uh, friday and hope to release it uh, next week so um, a lifetime could change between then but we're certainly <laughs> we're, we're afraid to see uh, what happens next we're hoping for the best but it does seem like right now we're in a situation in which we would love to have the possibility that both healthy people, which is to say people who um, are not um, ill with COVID-19, would be able to do their healthcare visits from home, and that people who may have a lot of symptoms that are consistent with COVID-19 would also be able to uh, check in from home and not travel um, in that way, avoid overrunning um, you know emergency rooms un- until a specialist had said, yes, you are candidate for someone who needs to to come in. And so it feels like we're just missing a tremendous amount of telehealth potential right now because we haven't connected a lot of people.
0: That's true. And some of that, you know, is about uh, broadband availability. But there are other barriers too that are coming down. And some of them are coming down very fast nowadays because of the COVID crisis Uh, I mentioned already the reimbursement issue, and although the payers have been growing over the last few years, public and private payers have been growing, and what kinds of telehealth-enabled episodes of care they'll reimburse professionally for, there's still some distance to go. And I sort of, this is just my gut feel, is that this crisis will boost Uh, interest in and push that quite a lot faster than it would have otherwise gone so that by the time this is over, let's suppose that we, uh, I don't have any more of a crystal ball than anybody, but let's suppose we look up again a year from now, we're likely to see an awful lot of providers and payers having found new ground in which they can and feel motivated to prioritize serving patients this way. Uh, Like any new thing, it takes some time and energy of its own just to adapt a new way of providing care to people. Doctors, reasonably enough, want to know that they have a modality uh, where they can feel assured that they're not just giving nominal access to care to people, but are giving them the kind of quality care that they deserve. Uh, they also have uh, regulatory and malpractice issues to deal with. They want to make sure they stay on the right side of those as they extend themselves remotely. And some of it's just changing habits. I'll give one example. My uh, sister is a psychotherapist, has been a psychotherapist for 40 years. And although I've been talking to her for the last decade or so about maybe doing some of her practice on telehealth uh, based modalities, just in the last two weeks, She's essentially been forced to do that, and she's adapted, and it's been a struggle, you know. But she's there where most of her patients she's seeing remotely now, and many of them are people who she feels are responding better. She never would have gone out and done that experiment, I don't think, to find out which ones would respond better. Uh, others are responding about the same, and a few are she doesn't feel are responding as well. But it's in this case, it's better to have some session that they don't respond to as well as they might an in-person session, been none at all, and uh, which would have been the alternative in this particular situation. So I, I think there'll be a lot of growth in this area, and it's uh, I, I personally applaud it. I think people all over the country, regardless of almost where, where they live, that they ought to have access to high-quality health care, but that's just me.
2: Right, so with you, it's hard for me to imagine someone who's not nodding their head right now. <laughs> um, one of the things I'd be curious about as well is if um, over the over a period of weeks or months, if if there's. Uh improved ability to attend. Um, you know, I mean, I think this is one of the things for people with recurring health care is if we can make it more convenient, whether it's for mental health or other forms of health care, um, we, we may see improved um, outcomes, I would assume, from just making it as convenient as possible to get help.
0: That's quite possible. I think people on these pilot programs that I talked about before try to measure these things and For people listening, when when I think of what do they mean by convenient, they usually mean that it becomes practical for people to do things rather than just a little nicer somehow. So convenient means being able to see the therapist once a week as opposed to maybe once a month. Convenient means for most people who are also working or taking care of children or taking care of elders, not having to arrange for those things to be managed in their absence while they go off to some physician visit or some doctor visit that could have been done with a telehealth modality with just a few minutes out of both the doctor's day and the patient's day at a time that was convenient to both of them. And so you get, to, you know, take somebody who's working and they have children, and they have elderly parents, but the elderly parents are taking care of the children while the worker is off during the day. Well, if the grandparent has to have a doctor visit, well, what happens? The worker has to go off the clock in order to take care of the children, and maybe two workers, they have to take the children along with the elderly parent in the car to the doctor, and then reverse the whole thing, and very many of these folks are not living in a world where they have such high discretionary income that they can say, well, that's all right, I just won't make quite as many dollars this month. Instead, uh, they have very little discretionary income, and so, in effect, giving up work for a day, if nothing else, and sometimes there are other things that matter, but giving up work for a day means losing a significant income that's applied toward direct, immediate needs in the household. So this convenience idea, is, uh, I think, is better described in those scenarios rather than just, well, So I can do something on my phone as opposed to having to take, be a a salaried person who just takes an hour off and goes to a doctor visit that's five miles away. You know, that's not the kind of situation that we'll get the big gains from. But you're right. I mean, I sort of expect surprises. I expect people to get surprised about these new modalities and I expect them to take them up and find that convenience of the ways that we've just been talking about is now possible and practical and that they'll prefer them. And and that will push the healthcare community along with their own interest in providing good care and being efficient and effective.
2: I really appreciate you spelling out um, some of the scenarios that are encompassed by trivial, perhaps, use of the word convenience. Um, But, you know, I think that's something that is faced by not just millions of people, but probably tens of millions of people. And there's such hope as we overcome all of the barriers to telehealth that you noted um, you know, one is the one that I focused on is is broadband. And I know that we can get high quality broadband to everyone. And let that not be a barrier. And I don't know if anyone will write the story or do the studies to find out what a gain there is. But I think we'll find that uh, states and the federal government save significant money as we're able to use this and, and all Americans are able to take uh, full um, use of it.
0: We might save some money on health care, but I'd argue there's another ethical moral argument and just an argument about the culture of the country, which is we're making people healthy is a good in itself. It's not just making them healthy so they can work and making them healthy so they can do other things. Being, being healthy is being healthy is a good thing for a person It has, well, we've all had experience at least with being sick in minor ways, and it's hard to have an enjoyable life when you're ill.
2: Yes, and as someone who's had chronic pain for 15 years, I personally, um, it's not a significant source of pain when there's nothing I can do about um, having some pretty bad arthritis. But it's frustrating to know there's people out there who are probably in more pain than me who could be treated. And, and as you say, live a better life and we can solve that. Um, so I really appreciate your time today. I think you put some, some of this, uh, the telehealth discussion into a, a much greater context than we normally see. So thank you very much for that. Well, you're welcome. I uh, hope it's been helpful to your listeners.
1: Thanks for tuning in to this episode in our YNC Broadband Matters podcast series and for listening to the Community Broadband Bits podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. Remember to follow Christopher on Twitter. His handle is at CommunityNets. And if you follow at on Twitter, you'll tap into all the NC Broadband Matters material. We want to thank Shane Ivers of SilvermanSound.com for the series Music, What's the Angle? licensed through Creative Commons. And we want to thank you for listening. Until next time.